Let's try this. You're listening to Almost Heretical. Coming to you from a shed in Bend, Oregon. Welcome to the podcast. Let's sort of caveat our theological systems that we've been trained we have to believe. Let's back up and pay attention to the biblical story and see how well those systems do or don't fit as ways of describing what the, what the Bible's actually trying to say. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. This might be like a big rabbit trail or bunny hole. What's a bunny hole? <laughs> I just made that up, huh? Rabbit trail. It's a rabbit trail for kids. Is <laughs> I'm thinking Alice in Wonderland, which is really compelling, going down the, the rabbit hole. Um, maybe it's a rabbit hole. But last time we finished up talking about the fall and how we have traditionally viewed the fall as just kind of Adam and Eve's fall. But there's really much more going on there. And there's multiple falls and and all this stuff. And part of this led to talking about how God actually apportioned these other divine beings to be the gods of other nations. That he, in in a sense, expected the other nations to worship these gods, but that Israel should worship him alone. What, and I think we talked about it at the end of the last, the last one, but what first comes to my head is other religions now, but... I understand there's, you know, we're talking about thousands of years here in between and there's not like a direct connection there, but because I guess the reason I say that is because I don't know. I just have a lot of friends that are exploring other stuff and there's a lot of reasons why they don't like Christianity. And honestly, I agree with them on a, on a lot of those things. Um, you know, the, whether it's the, 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 uh, the leaders of American evangelicalism right now, um, and you just have to read a couple Franklin Graham tweets to throw up in your mouth and we'll probably get to a lot of stuff on politics and current events and that kind of stuff down the road. But all that to say, I, I see what they're feeling and what they're thinking. Not even, even if you don't go to that extreme of like the Franklin Graham Christian, um, you know, there's the, there's still these pictures of God, um, in where he's, all controlling and he's got to be the one doing all the bad garbage crap to people. And he killed your baby. And he like, this is stuff that we've, we've actually heard. Yeah. I feel like I don't always have the words to push back on that stuff. So I'm left either with like a bad argument back to the person where they go like, yeah, you just don't, well, you don't trust the Bible. You're not under the you know authority of scripture. You just wanted to say whatever you wanted to say, or I just have to go along with that. But yeah, so you have, we have these bad pictures of God. We have these really bad pictures with with certain people out there right now that are speaking for American Christianity and probably actually are the majority view. Then we also have these others that are trying to be quote unquote biblical and I think we've mentioned that word is kind of a kind of a trigger word for us um just cuz we've seen it used. I don't know, have we seen it used? <laughs> have we seen that word that word used um that makes it a trigger word? I mean, man, you're you're bringing up a lot of stuff I know. there, which I'm we'll all... probably have to tackle one at a time. I mean, you and I have both uh, had a kind of strong, pungent, bad taste in our mouth around the word biblical, because uh, at least in my experience, and, and I think yours too, something is biblical or is not biblical if it's what your denomination decides that the Bible means, uh, which often tends to be in line with what you politically want to see happen and... Uh, and of course, you and I have got strong feelings on the ways that connects to race and white supremacy and American religion and gender issues, all sorts of that stuff. Form. Yeah, gender, everything. So, yeah. um, so that's a whole that's a whole ball game. The piece of basically 
the sovereignty of God realm of theology is is actually a, one of the main pieces uh, why I'm a big proponent of we need to do our homework here to to build out this quote unquote biblical cosmology to kind of understand this view that there's a whole realm of other divine beings. It's the main point of Greg Boyd's God at War book, which he published back in the 90s. It's a great book, got a lot in there. If you boil it down to the the simplest idea to me, it's an oversimplification, but it's probably pretty accurate, is if you believe that the only two agents in the, the cosmos that affect human affairs are humans and God, then at the end of the day, God gets blamed for all of the bad stuff that so happens. Even, even in that sense, I mean, because I don't think any Christian would say that. They would say, no, no, you're forgetting Satan. He's the, you know, whatever. We already talked a little bit about the fallen angel, whatever, but he's the one out there doing the bad stuff. And God allows him right now, but eventually he's going to fully get rid of it. I mean, that's sort of what I've always thought, right? But it's still, it's still got to be God, though, right? If Satan's allowing, or if God's allowing Satan, if he's allowing that, then that's still God doing that, right? If he could stop that and he's not... Yeah, and that's right. I mean, what you're just articulated is is uh, one of the core parts of essentially our Protestant theological heritage. It, Martin Luther literally said that Satan is God's devil, and uh, the world you and I grew up in with strong commitments to Calvinism and what we would call neo-Calvinism essentially will recognize Satan as a figure, but wants so strongly to constantly, constantly assert that nothing happens apart from God's control, that it all ends up boiling down to God could have done something about this. Most of us would say should have done something about this, say something like the Holocaust. And according to that view, the the only reason he didn't is because he he chose not to or saw it best not to. So Boyd's point and a, and a whole bunch of others that are reading the Bible more carefully than that and aren't as committed to being in some sort of theological tradition is just to say, hey, the Bible never struggles, for one, with theodicy. None of the biblical authors are like in this existential crisis to try to explain suffering. Their theological framework has all sorts of space for making sense of suffering in the world. They have very clear ideas of beings who are causing that suffering and they have a very strong belief and faith that Yahweh, their God and the God of the universe, is diligently working to put an end to that suffering. There, There's all sorts of tensions. There's all sorts of mystery. I mean, we could spend a year processing through this stuff. We'll probably do a few episodes kind of with this focus. But the basic math, to me, is kind of unavoidable. If you have two agents, humans and God, God gets blamed. And what ends up is what we've all seen is eventually... <laughs> Once you start thinking about things like really, really atrocious evil, like just things that are outright evil, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, many, many, many of us, especially younger generation right now, end up saying, if that's what God is, I don't, I don't think I want to be a part of that, mm-hmm. that, that deal. And the case we've been making, and Greg Boyd's main point, is that the Bible doesn't say it's only two parties. The Bible attests to three parties, Yahweh, the human realm, and this realm of divine spirits. And that from the get-go, from chapter three of Genesis, there is a cosmic war going on. And evil is a, is a part of the horror of war, essentially, that we're experiencing. But he wants 
us to be able to say, and I agree with him, that God is wholeheartedly on the side of standing against evil and working, which is what the cross shows us, working diligently to, to bring that to an end. I think the the problem that pops up in my head when I hear that and probably probably why people have developed these other views is because that makes it sound like there's this that God's in some sort of struggle, you know, and then suddenly God's not all we want it, God has to be the all powerful and but and what and the definition of that means nothing he's not struggling with anything or anyone or any other powers or anything like that um yeah, he's the most powerful. And and what power means to us is he's never losing, I guess. And so what you just described sounds like there's this struggle and God shouldn't be struggling. Yeah, totally. And I, I think, again, that's another great articulation of the heritage that the world of American Protestant religion, especially evangelicalism, if this is the water that we were told we have to swim in. If I could boil it down in kind of emotional, psychological terms, it is a a fear of any I, any concept, any idea, any kind of theology that would ever cast any doubt on God as ultimately, constantly, meticulously, to use the, the Calvinist language, in control of everything going on all the time. The idea that there might be other beings who pose some sort of threat or actually present some sort of risk to the great cosmological plan of of history is a terrifying concept for Mm. a lot of people. And I've sat in seminary classes and and had lecturers actually get to the point where they will make a case that they're defending a view of God, which went all the way to the deep, dark extent at one point where a guy was defending God's right to kill children for no reason. That, That kind of God that we would all look at and say is a moral monster, that he would rather have a view of that kind of God where his character is deeply in question, a God that could just get away with anything, than he would have a view of a God who might not be in control of every single thing that happens. So there are a lot of people out there at different levels of theological aptitude that will essentially, in my opinion, tarnish their view of God and sacrifice the character of God, that God is actually loving, that God actually is just, that God actually doesn't want evil, in order to protect their view of the all-powerful, omniscient, immutable, impassable, all-everything kind of essentially Western philosophical God. And I'll just make the case very clearly that that's just not what the biblical authors are making the case for. And essentially this struggle that is one of the main reasons young people especially leave the church over ideas of what God is and isn't in control of and what God is and is decreeing. When you see people tweet that a tsunami was God's goodwill for the planet, a bunch of people are saying, I'd rather go figure it out on my own than pledge allegiance to that kind of God. 
And we have created this problem where, where figuring out what God thinks about evil is one of the most determinant factors in how people think about Christianity today. And if you just read the Bible and pay attention, they simply aren't dealing with this problem. It is not an issue. Everyone who's a decent Bible-reading Jew knows exactly how they're supposed to feel about God and suffering. And it's hopeful, it's positive, it's good news. Uh, and that's where some of our theological heritage has just got us down, uh, in your words, a bunny hole uh, that is just no. really dark and hard to get out of. Yeah. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) And... It doesn't tie in directly, but I mean, we do see God. We do see God losing, in a sense, um, Jesus on the cross, and I'm sure we got a lot to go. We got a lot of places to go there, and we'll do that at a later time. But that doesn't fit with our view of what it looks like for someone to be all powerful to you know die this death and basically a government-sanctioned lynching. So I guess we do have evidence of God being all-powerful and yet that not looking like what we would assume power looks like. And, but then we come back and we just, we just continue to say that what it means for God to be all-powerful means he's in control of every, everything. And that's, it seems like that's where the, that's like a, a leap you take that the biblical authors didn't take. They have the all, he's all-powerful. He's, he's the most high of all of these divine beings. But we take that next, is that just because of our culture? When you have power in our, in our culture, what that means? For us, I mean, if I have power, I'm going to use that power to control things in such a way for me and my family and my friends and my people to protect us, to make sure we have what we need and and everything is taken care of. For, I, I don't know. Maybe that's, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Does that I, make sense at all? I know what you're getting at and, and you know as well as I do. We could talk for a long time on issues of, of the ways that American culture and the church in America thinks about power and tries to use power and the ways that it interprets the cross in one particular way because of its <laughs> stubborn views of power. But I, th- I mean, you, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like Colossians 2 has one of my favorite, 1 and 2 has some of my favorite passages in the New Testament that are depicting the death of Christ on the cross as the victory over Satan, the triumph where he essentially is depicted in a victory procession, walking Satan through the street and putting him on display. Hmm. Uh, it's depicted as a, as a great battle victory, not the final end of the cosmic war. That's still in place, and we're a part of that right now. But it's the best battle victory that so far has, has been won by this all-powerful God, Yahweh. And how did it happen? By him losing, choosing to lose, choosing to 
allow himself to to be killed. So if if we then, those that are choosing to be a part of the Christian faith because we testify to the power of this same gospel, if we think that what it means for God to be powerful or sovereign is that he absolutely has to be the one who's making everything happen all the time and that all of the things that happen go exactly the way he wants them to happen. I just think we're not sufficiently making theological sense of the cross in our thinking of God. And it gets into a bigger conversation on uh, some of the language of predestination and God wanting and choosing the cross to happen. And we can talk about more later, but I think it's really interesting that essentially the only times you see terms like predestination used in the scriptures are to talk about the most seminal events in the biblical story. So Joseph going into Egypt, Israel getting thrown into exile, and the cross event, and Jesus, the Son of God, being killed and resurrected. And we typically, at least in our tradition, have taken those few samples where the biblical writers are saying these most massive events in, in the history of God's work of redemption were something that he planned ahead of time and worked out diligently. We've taken that idea and we've then applied that. This is a hermeneutic. We've applied it to every possible little detail of human affairs that could ever happen. So when a kid gets sick or when somebody dies from cancer or when people go to war or when someone walks into a movie theater and starts shooting people, we now have taken the same idea of the biblical author saying, God foreordained that Jesus was going to win this battle and then start to make the assumption that therefore God foreordained that this guy was going to walk into a movie theater and start shooting a whole bunch of people. And it's a hermeneutical leap that to me, I don't see any justification for it, but I also just look at the fruit of that move and it's, it's toxic and leads a lot of us to say, if, if that's what this is, I'm out. So I want to backtrack a bit and say, hey, let's sort of caveat our theological systems and the categories that we've been trained we have to believe. Let's back up and pay attention to the biblical story and see how well those systems do or don't fit as ways of describing what the, what the Bible's actually trying to say. is a lot of work and this is it seems like we're just teaching a theology class here or something like that but well not me it seems like you're you're teaching a theology class but it's important because and, and I hope I hope that's like that's coming across here that like our heart is for all these issues that are are controversial right now or these pictures of God that are that are bad and and helping helping correct those and for the sake of people not having to walk away from a God that's not actually even like real because they've just heard that that's well if that's what he's like I, I don't want anything to do with that and so there is a lot of work to be done um, to go back and re reread this story um, and and not skip over some of these uh, weird and and pieces missing pieces um, that we usually just kind of I don't really know what that's talking about maybe maybe they're actually there for a reason and maybe this all 
um, helps tell us some bigger story that, uh, and, and that's sort of what we've done so far. We we walked up to towards the fall, and so we know we know the problem really well here. Um, and it was a lot of work to get through, and there's going to be still more work, uh, more work to go. But now we're kind of getting into even more fun stuff because we're talking about what's the what's the solution to this problem. And and we were just kind of off mic having a conversation, and maybe we can bring that in here. But there's sort of I grew up with kind of two. Well, I grew up with one solution to this problem. And now there's kind of a newer one. The one I grew up with, and I think a lot of people grew up with, and maybe some people are still still in, is this, I, I need to be personally saved because of the fall of Adam and Eve. And that, that fall was transferred all the way down to me. And I, I can't do anything good. And so I need to be saved from all of this. And so I accept this personal salvation. And now I'm saved. And um, I don't go to the bad place when I die. I go to the good place when I die. But there, there has been a lot of cool and exciting stuff from a lot of different people around the kingdom of God and how it's actually about uh, establishing God's kingdom here and how we can kind of usher that kingdom in. And I think this is going to, rereading this story and doing all the work we're doing, it's going to build on that even more, uh, this kingdom of God and what is the kingdom of God and what other ways do you think that's going to impact the second and better way of, of viewing the solution? How's it going to even get any even better, I guess? Yeah, I've, I've uh, kind of used the metaphor of walking down a path or taking a road. And the the reason we've gone back to Genesis and started this podcast with sort of some of this weirder stuff of the divine council and God ruling the gods and sort of the obscure stuff you'd think you'd save for like the Friday night class that no one shows up to at church or something, is uh, essentially what we're trying to do is go back down to the beginning of this path, the beginning of a biblical theological journey. And backfill is much of the most important missing pieces of information that we can. That the biblical writers just assumed we knew too, right? That we're supposed to know, exactly. They are seen as necessary thoughts in the metaphor, necessary steps along the way. My case is, if it's a journey in terms of paradigms being built on top of paradigms, and we are missing some of the most important ones that come at at the earlier parts of the story, that we end up, by the time we get to the end of it, into the New Testament and Jesus and what it means to be Jesus' followers living in the light of that, especially now 2,000 years of Christian history later, uh, we're so far down the road but missed so many key turns along the way that A, where we've ended up is, is really far away from where the Bible was trying to get us to go, and B, if we don't go back toward the beginning and start filling in some of our missing information, we're just going to keep having the same arguments with the same lack of convincing material that you and I have basically participated in our whole lives and called it systematic theology. So what we're trying to do is essentially back things up, go back to the beginning. We're obviously still going to have to skip over a lot. I mean, it's kind of a, a lifetime project for all of us. But at least some of the big pieces of information, you know, is God the only divine being or are there other divine beings? Is this a kind of cosmic war? What Those big pieces of information and walk forward, not so we could stay studying Genesis for five years, but so that we can essentially get back to some of the stuff that really matters to, to you and I and are the hot button issues going on today, like how does God relate to violence and how do you interpret the cross and what are Jesus followers supposed to do in, in a culture like ours, living in an empire like the United States of America, living under a president like Donald Trump. What we want to do is give ourselves more tools, or in another metaphor, more ammunition, 
to re-examine our ideas, our concepts, our theology by essentially filling in as much of our theological gaps along the way so that when we come back to the New Testament stuff, we can re-examine it in a new way. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we just want, yeah, we thought that was important to kind of just have a real open, honest conversation about the fact that this stuff is difficult, but it has real implications for how we live and how we are Christians and what that actually means in our culture and our context. And it is going to address hot topic questions that your neighbor is wondering about and you're wondering about if we're all being honest. And so we're excited. It's going to be cool. Yep. Cool. All right. Uh, hold on. Don't, don't stop. So Nate, you said uh, after we kind of walked through the the few episodes on the fall and had a couple aha moments that we're connecting uh, the Tower of Babel and the rebellion in the garden to these divine sons of God and even the, the nations being split up and allocated to the sons of God. And one of the first questions that came to your mind was uh, relating to other religions and sort of how do we make sense of uh, in today's age, in our pluralistic society, what is the posture? What is kind of the biblical posture? We can get into that in more depth later, but I think it's it's a good moment here to just do a little bit of an aside. It's one of the things that I've kept reflecting on since kind of running into these ideas. And we touched on it real briefly, but I think it's worth a more significant reflection is that at first just to recognize that the point that the, those Deuteronomy texts are making when they are saying that the, the Babel event God splitting up the nations was God's choice that the best thing he decided to do was to delegate rulership, divine rulership of all of the nations of the world, except for what would become Israel. He chose to entrust to other gods, other Elohim, other divine beings, the national rulership over those people. And in a very clear sense what that means and we'll trace this through when we notice that the uh, the main condemnations of idolatry and warnings against idolatry are to Israel not to the entire world that what that means is there is some very real sense in which God fully knew that he was not going to be the God worshipped by these other nations that he was okay with letting the other nations of the world have their other gods I guess to say that in other words God is the one who chose to create a world in which different nations and different peoples have different religions based on different conceptions of who their God is. That's weird. That's, <laughs> it's uh... weird, and it's, it's not that simple either, because when you get to the New Testament, and even before you get to the New Testament, that's not the way it's supposed to stay. This isn't God's first choice. This was a compromise. And we'll see that the creation of Israel was to eventually challenge that notion and win those nations back to Yahweh just through a different strategy. But when we see when we get to the New Testament and the terminology like demons starts being used, in one of the episodes we talked about Paul's kind of logic in 1 Corinthians related to people in the church eating food sacrificed to idols. And we talked about Paul 
wants to make a very clear point that the idols themselves, the like the relics, the created icons, uh, statues or whatnot, uh, were nothing. They had no power. But he reminds everybody very clearly that the beings that those icons are dedicated to are real gods, and, and he refers to them as demons, which we'll get into the kind of the technical details of this later, but essentially demons comes to be used as a, as a term that's basically the bad guys. It's the, the malevolent Elohim. And his whole point is that, again, they are the people of God, are not supposed to be tied up in demons, but what he is pretty clearly saying is that these gods aren't neutral. These gods of the other nations are not good guys. They are bad guys. And we talked a little bit about some of the speculation in Psalm 82 where God decrees them as bad rulers. They are even given a death sentence. So there is a sense that that's not the way things are supposed to be. And there's a sense where as Christians, a significant part of our calling is to be a part of winning the nations of the world back to Yahweh, away from the gods they're worshiping. But another piece I just have sat with for a while is when you look at the way Paul actually does this in Acts 17, he's in Greece and, uh, and he, he goes to Athens and he sees that the people in Athens, he sees all of the, the worship that, is, that they are doing that is not directed to Yahweh, but essentially to a complicated pantheon of, of gods. And what he doesn't do is stand up on a pedestal and call everybody evil idolaters. He doesn't do that at all. He's not at all surprised or even condescending to think that other gods who Yahweh gave nations away to those other gods, he's not at all surprised that those nations are worshiping those gods and not Yahweh. So what he does is not stand up and insults them. He stands up and makes a a strong persuasive case to say, hey, I actually know a, the truer and better God, redirect your worship towards, towards Yahweh. And, and that's where I just, <clears throat> in where we're at right now, after the, the culture wars <laughs> that our parents went through and the kind of residue and what has felt like a sort of uh, resurgence in the last couple years of American politics with people like Franklin Graham kind of kickstarting another culture war, and you get stuff of just this month, Trump was retweeting anti-Muslim hate propaganda, that we have a posture as an American Christian society, whatever. There is a, there's a posture in evangelicalism towards other religions, other cultures, and, and the religious views of other cultures that seems to be far more hostile and insulting and hate-driven than anything you see in either Old or New Testament world. And that's not to say that it's, it's nothing like universalism, uh, although I'm sure we'll get some of that. It's not to say that there isn't a Christian motive to win people towards worshiping Jesus and Yahweh instead of other gods, but there's definitely something here in terms of one's posture, one's attitude, and, and some of it just comes from a sense of you know, what else would you expect if, if Yahweh decided a long, long time ago that he actually was only going to show himself and be in personal relationship with one tiny little group of people who became the Jews? Why, why would we be insulting towards Aboriginal tribes or Native Americans or 
whatever other cultures of people that had to figure out for themselves what they thought God was. And then there's a whole other tangent that gets into concepts of spiritual warfare and all, all that sort of stuff. So, Okay, so two, two things kind of come to my mind. Why would Paul be trying to win win them to Jesus if God's totally, if Yahweh is totally cool with and actually was the one that established these other divine beings? Well, yeah, why? I mean, I understand that Israel was chosen to be a blessing to the nations, but why can't, what does that, what does that mean? Why can't they just be a blessing? Why do they have to, what does that imply? So this is where I, and the reason I bring this up is because I think this is where a lot of a lot of the jerkiness comes in is when you feel like you need to win someone to something. So, I mean, I want to go in with the best of respect and understanding that this was potentially as what we're finding is that God actually set this up. And so you go in with the best respect. Obviously these people have these other gods. God actually was the one that allowed, not just allowed that, but set that up and, and whatever. But I think we, that's where you kind of get into trouble is when winning someone over to something when you, when you have that motive of winning someone over, suddenly you stop stop seeing them as a real person. You you know it's just about getting them to this other place that they're not currently at and worshiping this other thing instead of the thing they're worshiping. And we kind of end up throwing out sometimes. This is sort of what you were talking about. We kind of end up throwing out that the person actually does care about love and goodness and treating others the way they want to be treated. And there's a lot of people doing this even though they're worshiping a different god. And it just becomes about winning them to this other. To, to Yahweh. And I don't know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Nate, so I think you use a, a key word there is respect. And the reason I brought up the Acts 17 example of Paul talking to Athenians is there seems to me to be a, a really clear sense of at least respectful attitude and posture. And when I use the word respect there, it, I guess what I mean is it's not derogatory. Paul isn't insulting. He's not even looking down upon others. He, he is empathetic, I would say, to the, the reason why if you live in Athens, you worship the gods of Athens. It, it makes sense. But that doesn't mean that Paul doesn't believe that he, A, has, has better information than they do. That is through and through the Judeo-Christian view of divine revelation, is that they have privileged insight into who God really is, what the, the, the world is actually organized as, and, and uh, kind of the course of history. And so Paul feels a, an obligation, a very real sense that he's sharing with Jesus and, and the Old Testament community as well, is there's a calling built into Israel's identity as a, as a priesthood to the nations that is meant to help get the world back to what Adam and Eve were supposed to be doing in the first place. So I totally get the tension. I've, I've wrestled with this for a while. How can God have chosen to pass off every other nation in the world to other gods and then be bummed at, at how it plays out? But the, sen- the sense is uh, that you're getting, it's, this was never the first plan. It wasn't even plan B. This was a, a not good accommodation of God choosing a new strategy to use this minority community of the people of Israel, uh, a minority slave community, by the way, to eventually have this countercultural effect on the rest of the world. And that's where you get the ideas of like salt and light and a city on a hill and the yeast uh, metaphor that Jesus uses to talk about the kingdom of God, that the, the plan is that there's supposed to be a small, starts very, very small, countercultural community that over... <laughs> what the church's history will 
certainly prove is a long, long course of history will slowly start to uh, win a kind of theological argument around the world that is convincing people that that Yahweh is the true God and that the person of Jesus who gave himself up out of love for others is the best known manifestation of the God of the cosmos that the world has ever seen. We've heard a version of this all the time and, and both of us can't stand what it actually meant of sort of you can like respect others but disagree with their ideas. And what it actually plays out as is just angry arguing and uh, you don't actually res- respect the person that you're arguing with. And I think that's the, the, the piece I'm noticing in the, in the scriptures, uh, especially in Paul, is he, he genuinely disagreed and genuinely believed that everybody needed to know about Jesus and Yahweh. And yet he was not derogatory and I think was actually sympathetic to understanding why people that weren't Jews would be worshiping other gods. And that's, I think, the, just the thing that we've got to try to grasp. And uh, yeah, it's a hard tension. What, what got Paul's mind blown was first that Jesus was a manifestation of God and chose to sacrifice his life. That's part one, the self-sacrificial uh, manifestation of God. But part two is that Paul, who's the child of a multi-thousand year history of people, whose identity at the formation of that people, their entire reason that God brought them into existence, was to eventually help Yahweh re-inherit the nations, bring them back under into his presence, into relationship with him, out from under the God's relationship with these other gods, that Paul realized that what happened at Pentecost was the green light, finally, after thousands of years, that it was time to do that thing. And what we'll see is that Paul took it on himself to literally get to the ends of the list of the table of nations in his own life, which is why Paul talks about he has to get to Spain before he dies, because Spain at the time was uh, Tarshish, was the furthest known place in in Paul's known world. And he took very seriously the idea that after many, many generations where Jews are waiting around for the coming kingdom of God, that Paul realized, oh, this is it. This is the moment where it isn't just Jews holding on for sheer survival and trying to be faithful themselves. The whole Gentile world is now brought into this picture. What that means is it's time to go get evangelistic. It's time to go into a kind of ideological battle with these other gods to actually confront them and confront other religions to say, hey, You've been worshiping such and such God, but Yahweh is the true creator God that created all things. And he's better, more loving, more just than your God. Uh, worship him instead. And so the, the whole motivation for evangelism 
in the New Testament and in the church is is drawn from this concept here that Yahweh disinherited the nations and the whole point of ever creating a people in the first place was to have a job to go about compelling those nations to come back to worship Yahweh. So there's still a lot, even for me emotionally, when I sit and reflect on it, that seems hard to kind of sit with of like, it's been 2000 years of trying to do that. What have we accomplished? And there's a lot we can talk about there. I mean, for one, and some other people have made this case, the fact that, you know, we talk about the secularization of culture as a, as a problem most of the time, like people don't believe in God anymore because we live in a secular world. But secularization is a result of Christianity and the spread of Christian ideas in large part. And secularization in much explain of that, that. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah. So a lot of what secularization is, you know, Charles Taylor famously used the term the, the disenchantment, that the world throughout all cultures and histories was an enchanted world. If you saw something that you didn't have an answer for, a scientific material explanation for, you ended up with with a kind of mystical divine explanation, right? So we we mentioned uh, the example of looking at the stars in the sky and thinking that they were either gods themselves or somehow divine in their nature. Uh, And you get that stuff all over the place. Now we live in this scientific world and we want to point to a scientific explanation of everything. So when Paul sets out to get around his known world suffering all sorts of woes and trying to continue on getting all the way to Spain before he dies, what he is trying to do is essentially dethrone all of these gods who Yahweh delegated responsibility to so that Yahweh can step in and and reclaim that rulership role. And when Paul starts that journey, every culture in the world believes in a whole plethora of gods. That's just what everybody believes. They've got different concepts for it, different mythologies, different texts, all that sort of thing. That's what everybody believes. Now, fast forward to the world that we're living in today, especially in Western American culture, we're now making the case that people need to go back and believe in the existence of other divine beings besides Yahweh. Part of what that shows is that over the culture, over the the history of of cultural progress and new ideas, those gods have in large part been successfully dethroned. The decision for most Americans is do they believe in a god or do they believe in no god? That's what they're considering. And for a lot of them, it's do you believe in the god Yahweh of the Bible or do you believe that there is no god at all? And the reality is in, in Paul's world, there's no concept for atheism. There's no such thing as an atheist. It's do you believe in this God or that God? And what do you believe about those gods? So part of the case that I'm making is, as I go back and forth all the time on, depends on my mood, I guess, of whether I feel like the world is progressing in a positive fashion or whether we're regressing and getting further from goodness. But at least to some extent, there is a sense in which the church's mission of re-inheriting the nations for God has been slowly but surely happening over the past 2,000 years to the point where most cultures in the world, and usually those that aren't, are these tiny little tiny little tribal cultures that people are still trying to reach, but most cultures in the world have s- some bit of access to information about Yahweh and Jesus. And as part of that equation, part of that movement of ideas, the existence and the, and the rationale for worshiping a whole litany of other gods 
has increasingly weakened over the course of history. You've got to include technology and enlightenment and all sorts of other uh, scientific revolution and stuff in that equation, but that's just one one part of a reflection that sometimes I can feel like sort of makes sense of why the church has still been around for 2,000 years. And, and now we're trying to go back and give people that understanding of these gods again. Well, yeah, I mean, that's it's pretty ironic, right? Like, uh, no, Which would so, be totally foreign, not only because they knew the story, but because, well, duh, there's multiple gods like that's what you see when you look here and look there and you see you know which we've explained away but yeah okay i see i see what you're saying totally so there there is an essence in which if if christianity is truly part of the reason and i wouldn't just say christianity i'll say just the judeo-christian heritage i mean if you just even just look at the vast majority of the world ascribes to either christianity judaism or islam that if if you just look at that tradition and the force it's had in history, if you accept that that movement is part of why people are, around the world are less inclined to worship their local regional deity, like every culture did at one point in time, then there's some extent to which the evangelization or kind of Judeo-Christianization of the world is actually leading to some of the theological confusion that we have, uh, where we then start reading the Bible, which is talking about that very same progression and misunderstand what it's talking about because we're born in a world that thinks your options are either one God or zero gods. Yeah, that seems like a combination of uh, what we've done in Christianity and our, how we've evangelized, but also largely science too, right? I mean, that's that's going to be scientific progression and just the understanding we have enlightenment all that kind of stuff like that's going to lead to a lot of that naturally right like yeah totally and that's what i i don't want to make too strong like a case for some sort of historical efficacy uh, in christianity but if if you just think about this so the scientific world that you and i were born into where most of what we learn most of our favorite ideas uh, that we encounter these days are from scientific research Research based on looking at the material world, doing studies, and noticing what you can notice from the material world about us. And it's very difficult. People like Charles Taylor and and James K. Smith and others have, have talked about kind of secularization. It's very difficult for most of us to believe supernatural things that either can't be explained by science or at times even seem to uh, potentially undermine this scientific kind of world that we live in or scientific view of the world that is true you and i are are in a secular culture it's difficult to believe in the supernatural but the reality is we're all sitting around can we believe the resurrection as christians in a secular world you have to fight to ask yourself can you believe in something supernatural but we're not talking most of us about can I believe in the existence of a whole litany of spiritual beings in this whole cosmology and this whole other realm? We're just simply talking about basically there being one God and Jesus was resurrected and there's some miracles here and there. And that's what I'm saying is we, the, the tension between a scientific worldview and a supernatural worldview exists regardless what your, uh, your religious cosmology is. But as a part of that, our cosmology has gotten whittled down to essentially, like we talked about at the beginning, a view of monotheism, which is that there's just one God in the universe and no other gods exist. And so we just have to 
challenge ourselves to see whether we can believe that that one God exists. And that is simply not the way any culture viewed the world or religion until basically recent history. Hmm. I don't know about everybody else, but this has been so good for me to try to get back to how the biblical authors viewed the world so that we can hopefully have a better framework to have these important discussions. All right. Well, everyone, we made it. We're through the fall. We put in the hard work. We laid this groundwork. And now we want to start kind of having some of these fun conversations uh, around some really hot topics right now. And the first one is a topic that has kind of had a lot of books and discussions and podcasts around it recently. And that's the conquest of Canaan. It's got a monster that sometimes commands his people to brutally murder men, women, and children. So tune in next time. If you like this show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you could take 30 seconds and go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review for this show, that'd be so excellent. This helps more people find the show and join in on this conversation with us. Finally, we'd love to answer your questions on the show. To leave a question, just call 503-343-4788 and leave a message with your name, your city, and the question, and we'll try to answer that on the show. Nate and Tim signing off. Peace. All the music you hear on Almost Heretical is produced by Kale Haugen. Find him online at kalehaugen.bandcamp.com. 